a Podcast One production. It's not uncommon these days to have the feeling that things are spinning out of control. All sorts of forces so much larger than us, so much larger than we can see. But maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Maybe we can use some very old ways of thinking to help us make sense of a very new world. On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we're turning the clock back to take a look forward. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this third series, we're continuing our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. The biggest film of 2019, the biggest film of all time to date, concerns some very flawed humans with very godlike powers. Avengers Endgame ran more than three hours and earned a billion dollars for every one of those hours. It's the latest chapter in a human tradition that goes all the way back. The whole idea of a superhero is very, very old. Think Gilgamesh. Think the Yellow Emperor. Think Hercules. Think Achilles. And let's not forget the Nephilim. You can look that up in Genesis chapter 6. All of these intersections between the human and the divine help us understand our own humanity. And so when we amplify some aspect of ourselves, when we amplify our strength or our intelligence or our wisdom or our kindness, we get a better view onto what that really is, what we really are. And whether or not we acknowledge it, what we are shapes the world we live in. Now, there's more than one variety of this modern mix-up between human and superhuman capacities. One person can be endowed with enormous powers, or we can be endowed collectively. We're so powerful together that we really do have superpowers. We can reshape the planet. In fact, we have to actively restrain ourselves from annihilating it, not just with the bomb, but with all of this carbon. And just like the superheroes in Avengers Endgame, we have to come to terms with our superpowers, make our peace with them. And that may be one reason why the film proved so popular. It helped us to think about what we really are. But do we know all of our powers? Do we know all of the areas where we trail off into these godlike bits? And and where we don't, where we live unenlightened, well, that's the darkness that can drive us toward all sorts of unthinking acts. Now, fortunately, there are some bright sparks among us working to let a little light in. Aaron C. Lewis is a designer philosopher, writer, and perhaps most famously worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, Aaron recently published a survey 
of several of our new powers, the ones we have, but maybe we don't acknowledge, and the ones, for just that reason, that are giving us all sorts of problems. So in this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we're going to walk through this new landscape with Aaron and try to understand just a little bit more of who we are. Aaron, welcome to The Next Billion Seconds. Thanks so much for having me. So you wrote an essay, you published it in July. Tell me a little bit about what your sort of reason for doing this was. What were you trying to do here? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign as a designer. um, And during that time, I got really interested in a bunch of issues related to disinformation, fake news on the internet, how false news spreads, how people make sense of what's real and what's not. Um, So for the last few months, I've been working on a bunch of different research projects related to those questions about how people make sense of uh, their reality in this weird sort of post-truth internet environment. Um, And as I started to learn about deep fakes and uh, weird things happening with VR, um, I learned about how people were uh, experimenting with uh, their digital selves in really weird ways, trying to turn themselves into deep fakes in order to... uh, outlast their physical bodies so that they could then, uh, you know, communicate with their ancestors after they were gone. So very quickly, I slid from these sort of political questions about uh, disinformation into questions that felt more uh, religious or theological, um, dealing with all these different ways that people are making sense of, um, of belief and reality on the internet. And this started reminding me so much of my childhood because I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. Um, and I was taught to believe in God and, and all these questions um, that came up in Sunday school uh, about truth and reality, they were all really simple back then, right? It's all, uh, if you want to know what's true, then you should look to the book, look to the Bible. Um, but as I started researching all these different interesting cultures on the internet, I, I, got, um, I got to thinking that a lot of these uh, different ways of making sense of our weird techno reality um, are sort of just new metaphors for uh, thinking about godlike phenomena. They're they're metaphors that make a lot more sense to um, people who are maybe more secular minded or more rational minded. Um, so I wanted to sort of explore what are what are these new ways that we're talking about godlike phenomena in this age when tech is is everywhere. So part of the power of a metaphor is it allows people to have handles on something that's so big Mm -hmm. that they can't, it's just, it's too big, it's too out there, it's so overwhelming. And so you give them a metaphor, you wrap it in a story or a tale. And so what you did then was wrap some of the stories we're telling in six different tales. And what I'd like to do is sort of walk through each of those tales because you named each of them. And the first one you named was something you called the human colossus. Yes. So these seven different metaphors, they come from all across the internet. The first is the human colossus. Uh, It gets its name from the Colossus of Rhodes, which was uh, a ancient Greek god. Um, A giant statue was built by the Greeks in order to honor their sun god after victory in war. Um, a few years ago on this really popular internet blog called Wait But Why, uh, the writer Tim Urban, he sort of reimagined the human, um, the Colossus of Rhodes as a human colossus, which is an image of a giant person sitting on top of a giant computer on top of the earth. And the idea is that it sort of helps us understand all 8 billion humans and all the knowledge that we've accumulated as this sort of single uh, superorganism, and each one of us is like uh, a cell 
in this giant body. So we've got this idea that there's 8 billion people collaborating to create a collective knowledge framework. And Wikipedia can be identified as an instance, but it's not the only instance. Mm -hmm. And we have this idea then that you have the knowledge colossus, the human colossus, and we're all resting on it. But if we turn that around, because we have this idea that you have 8 billion people creating and drawing on knowledge, but doesn't that also then mean that you have 8 billion people who are drawing on ignorance? Aren't intelligence amplifiers also having that shadow nature as an ignorance amplifier? Mm, Yeah, that's part of the issue that we're dealing with because over the last few hundred years, we've basically been in the process of connecting billions of people together from ships to trains to cars, radio, television, now the internet. And so information is, is spreading uh, at a rate that we've, we've never seen before. And of course, alongside that comes um, issues of misinformation and disinformation. So um, part of what we deal with whenever there's a media revolution is uh, understanding what happens as more and more gatekeepers are sort of knocked to the side and people are able to just communicate with each other on their own terms. All right, so... That's a, the human colossus is the starting point. Then the next one you identified is you gave it an old name, <laughs> Moloch, who shows up both as a as a god of the Philistines mm-hmm. and also shows up in Howell, which is a poem by uh, Ginsberg. Right. And Moloch was a god of the Philistines that supposedly they sacrificed their baby children on it. They actually literally burnt their baby children on the altar of Moloch to propitiate Moloch. So why would you take such a sort of <laughs> nasty blood-laden god and, and use that as an example of our, of our capacities? Yeah, so Moloch, Moloch, he's more of a demon than a god, as you, as you uh, outlined there. He comes from um, a internet famous essay that really blew up in the last few years called Meditations on Moloch, which was in a blog called Slate Star Codex. And the whole idea here is that Moloch arises whenever uh, humans try to coordinate at scale. Um, So there's all different types of coordination problems that we experience as we're trying to um, solve these big issues at scale, things like climate change and overfishing, um, the prisoner's dilemma, government corruption, and the idea with Moloch is that uh, he sort of happens to us against our will in the mm-hmm. sense that when we, when we try to uh, coordinate and we end up in these uh, sort of traps, what happens is um, there's like a competition, right? There's a competition between two groups or two people who are trying to get something. Um, and when an opportunity arises to throw some human value under the bus in order to get more of <laughs> to, that to thing. To burn it on the altar of exactly. Moloch. If the opportunity arises, um, basically those who take it, they win out. And right. those who um, who leave it, they die out, they perish. So we're sort of faced with these uh, these prisoner's dilemma-like choices. So it's a perverse incentive. Exactly. It's an incentive to behave badly. Right. And that's why it's sort of a demon because <laughs> even though um, no one likes the system as it exists today, it sort of uh, perpetuates because these problems are a little bit outside of our control. All right. And then we go on to the Uruk machine. Now, Uruk is one of the original cities, right? I mean, there's a few cities that qualify as the original cities. Uruk is on the short list. What is the Uruk machine? So the Uruk machine describes what happens when... um, seemingly irreversible market forces collide with pre-industrial social institutions, rituals, and practices. 
Um, basically, the Uruk machine really likes uh, grids and coherent order mm-hmm. um, much more than what it perceives to be chaotic messiness. So what happens is when there's like uh, smaller groups of people living in maybe relatively isolated tribes, they have highly efficient but very localized forms of doing things. Right. And oftentimes this knowledge takes the form of myths, which is like a mnemonic technology that can be passed on from generation to generation. But when a really large uh, market force um, comes in and tries to subsume the the smaller group, the smaller entity, basically bulldozes all of over all of these um, local cultural practices because it perceives them to be inefficient or they don't add value um, to the market in the way that it would like. So um, what happens is a lot of these uh, these traditional social practices that are the glue that that hold people together are really important for our emotional well-being and our social well-being. But because they're sort of invisible to these market forces, they end up getting um, left behind. And then when they get left behind and when the cultures get bulldozed, those people actually get angry, right? And this is then produces a nativist revolt. And one of the things that we can see quite clearly in the world of 2019 is there's no shortage mm-hmm. of nativist revolts. So, you know, is uh, is the Uruk machine the same process that we would also identify in one aspect as globalism, where it's actually trying to make everything that's economic conform to a globalist framework, and therefore we're seeing this anti-globalist pushback. Is that another reflection of this? Yeah, I think it's related because... Um it's sort of, I mean, you, you mentioned the nativist pushback, and this is a really good example. Because um, when, when the European colonists uh, first came to indigenous people in America, they often tried to make deals with them mm. um, or buy their property. Um, Manhattan being bought famously for beets. Right. And what's, what was um, so interesting is that the indigenous people oftentimes didn't even have the concept of private property. Right. And and they attributed a lot more weight to oral or verbal agreements than the written word um, of the European colonists. And so their system, their lifestyle, their way of living was basically invisible or unintelligible to this force. And I think that force is oftentimes uh, a a type of globalism that tries to take over. All right. So we've got the impersonal market forces crushing everything. We've got more like this failure and coordination, which is throwing all of our good characteristics under the bus. We have this colossus of information that's making us both smarter and stupider at speed. Now we come to something you call the stack. What's the stack? Yeah, so the the stack is a very academic god in this pantheon. It comes from from MIT, actually, uh, a design theorist and political philosopher named Benjamin Bratton um, came up with it. And uh, the, the idea with a stack is that sort of a new way of representing how geopolitics and power actually works in the 21st century. Um, traditionally, we've, we've sort of represented power uh, on these 2D maps that divide all of the world's territory into these little jigsaw puzzle pieces of sovereign countries. But nowadays... Um, as we've seen so clearly this year with Facebook and Google, a lot of tech companies have um, have more power oftentimes than nation states and their roles and responsibilities transcend traditional geographic borders. So the idea with the stack is uh, we need to represent uh, how power actually works nowadays given that um, it's not just about nation states. So he basically says instead of doing a, a sort of 2D map representation, we need to think of 
the way the world works now is this sort of 3D megastructure that's made up of six different layers. And instead of thinking about our phones and our devices and tech companies and nation states as existing in separate spheres, they all uh, sort of exist together as this single uh, like organism that uh, that's all like integrated into one thing. And so it's really accepting the reality that, in fact, although I might be using an Apple device, that means that in some sense my device is living in California mm-hmm. as well. And that that data is also living not just in California, but wherever data lives and how data is being used around it. And so it's actually asking us to see more in the world than we were taught about how the world actually works politically, socially. Mm-hmm. Okay. And going back to what you were yeah. saying about the nativist yeah. tradition, it's also teaching us to see that our devices come from the earth, right? It's like they come from or they're made from resources uh, that are given to us by the earth. So in that way, it's also sort of a, an integralist framework that's trying to tie together tech with with the land. And it also then starts to explain why a company like Facebook would want to be creating their own currency. Because again, if they're sitting above the idea of a nation, nations create their own currencies. Well, if they're in some sense above that idea, then they can also create a currency for their own uses for the same reasons that a nation would create a currency. Right. And this is what's so wild to me is I think growing up, I was always taught that all these entities sort of compete within their own category boundaries. Like Companies compete with other companies and religions compete with other religions. But part of what this idea makes really clear is that, no, 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 that's not, that's not really how it works at all anymore. A tech company can be competing with a nation state or partnering with it. Um, and so it's, it's sort of breaking the category boundaries that uh, became really uh, seeming solid in the 21st century. So, but that also means then that a trade war could be between a country and a company. Exactly. Not just between two countries. Right, and, and, uh, and also nowadays so much of our, uh, the military in America is outsourced to the big tech companies. Mm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the uh, military capabilities and surveillance capabilities are actually in the hands of private tech companies. So there's just a weird right. uh, blend of lots of different and, things. And you know, as we record this, this very same week, Microsoft won a $10 billion cloud mm-hmm. computing contract with the armed forces so right. that Microsoft is going to have a lot of the military data running on its machines. And so there is that idea that I guess part of the stack yes. for what we <laughs> thought of as the military is actually Microsoft. Yes, so the boundaries are becoming quite blurry. <laughs> All right, we'll return in a moment with Aaron Z. Lewis and three more of our modern gods. And we're back talking to Aaron Z. Lewis about the modern pantheon, the gods who are there that maybe we don't exactly acknowledge. All right, so number five, Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil, which is a good old-fashioned Norse name. It's the world tree in Norse mythology. So why is that on the list? What is that? (laughs) Yeah, so I think that Yggdrasil is really interesting. Um, Unlike the stack, which is a really hyper-technological god, Yggdrasil has a more uh, ecological flavor. Mm -hmm. And I think what it helps us understand is that... um, in this really hyper-connected internet world, even small local actions can have really unpredictable uh, ripple effects at a distance. It's sort of like, sort of like the butterfly effect, but supercharged by uh, the internet and international supply chains. Because Yggdrasil has roots 
um, that extend and branches that extend all across the multiverse in the Norse story. Mm. Um, and the parallel here is like the the branches of the internet ex- extend across all different uh, communities and worlds on the internet. And so basically uh, our our actions in Yggdrasil, when we're living in Yggdrasil, can come back to haunt us or they can can help us. Like uh, So there's that famous story of a woman who got on a flight to South Africa and tweeted something right before she got on the flight about hope I don't catch AIDS. And by the time, 10 hours later, she's gone from New York to Johannesburg, she is now the single most hated person on earth. <laughs> right. Because this tweet has been retweeted several hundreds of thousands of times. Right, and I think... Um, especially before um, before doing this research, I was working at Uber, and I saw this all the time. You know, designers who were sitting next to me uh, were making these decisions mm. that were having ripple effects uh, in Jakarta or some place halfway across the world where Uber's operating. And it's really, really, um, it's really core to how people move through the city and how people they work, how people work. Um, so these these small sort of spooky actions can have weird weird unintended consequences at a distance. Does does that mean in some sense that all of our activities, not only are they connected, but that in some sense the scope of our influence is unknowable to us? Like we think we're just going to affect this little thing over here, but in fact, actually, oh my goodness, we cause the tidal wave over there. Yeah, and I think the, I guess the, the tighter you connect the net or the web uh, of people together... Um, which is what's happened as we've you know linked linked billions of people up through the internet. The more those uh, the ripple effects of our actions are a little bit unpredictable. So the ripple effects. And another word for a continuous ripple is an agitation. Mm-hmm. And if we bring that into a psychological framework, people are agitated these days. Particularly, there's a strong correlation between the use of social media and the feeling of agitation. And I know from my own self, I dramatically cut back on my Twitter usage a couple of years ago precisely to release that agitation. Mm-hmm. So are we talking about Yudrasil as sort of being the the force, the agent behind that agitation, that because we are so closely connected, we're so capable of agitating one another? Yeah, and it's sort of the material that, that allows that to happen. And it's not just agitation. I mean, there's all different kinds of emotional contagion. They can be negative and they can also sometimes be positive. Yes. But I think the reason I like Yggdrasil so much as um, a metaphor for the internet is, is it's always kind of struck me as weird that we chose the cloud <laughs> as our operating metaphor for thinking about the internet because it really does seem more like a tree, right? Mm-hmm. We have fiber optic cables that extend all across the world like this root system. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like I like thinking about it because it feels more like how the internet's actually structured. And I mean, there ha- there have always been a number of different metaphors. Cloud was one that I think was convenient, but rhizomes were used particularly in early network mm. theory because of the way rhizomes, so that you know the way sort of um, mushrooms grow underground, but also a lot of plants, particularly legumes, will grow in these mats of of connections. Right. Okay, so your next god, something that we have already talked about on this series is, and you've given it the modern name, Singularity. So what is your version of what that god is? Yes, so the Singularity is the god of artificially intelligent utopia. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually the god that's closest to becoming a a sort of full-blown organized religion. Um, The prophets of the Singularity, oftentimes in Silicon Valley, talk a lot about how we need to transcend our carbon-based biology. Um, they and, do indeed. <laughs> and basically upload our, our consciousnesses to 
to the AI and and hope that it will be be benevolent when we do so. And for me, what's what's um, what's really fascinating about the singularity is it reminds me a lot of ideas that I grew up with in um, my Christian home. Mm. They make a very sharp sort of dualistic distinction between things that are AI um, and things that are not AI, which sort of reminds me of the distinction a lot of Christians make between the divine and and the merely human. Mm-hmm. And they also point to a sort of singular moment in the future when uh, humanity will be saved or damned a lot, a lot like the the, the, the rapture. rapture. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this, and this is an idea that's older than Christianity because it's Gnosticism, right? That this yeah. is idea that there's this human, earthly, weighted, imperfect, sinful. You can use all of the different metaphors, mm-hmm. and then there is the weightless, light, divine, mm-hmm. perfect form and that in some ways even if man's caught in between those two which is often in the ancient philosophy how that's framed that we're trying to transcend so is is the singularity just the latest version of that very old idea Mm. yeah i think so and if you look um throughout history we're always using uh the technologies that we invented to understand ourselves i mean um Throughout the last few hundred years, we've we've said things like the brain is like a telegraph, or the brain is like a telephone system, and now the brain is like a a, a computer or a neural network, and and so we're always seeing um, we're we're always using technology as a sort of mirror, and I think singularity is is the latest iteration of that. So, is there a, a danger? Because I mean, I heard people talking about uploading themselves. 35 years ago, people were talking about mm-hmm. it. And I always wondered, could you, and I, and I, always, I always, always ask them, so tell me exactly what you're uploading. And they could never mm. really answer. Like that was the point where it sort of trailed off into that they believed they could do it. But for something that was supposed to always be quite physical, right? That this is all reality physically based, they couldn't actually <laughs> point to what we are right. like that was the slippery bit was the human bit it's like the thing that actually makes us us mm-hmm. it's not your neurons it's not this it's the other thing so are we in some sense is the singularity also this continuous question for what is it to be human mm. yeah i think ultimately it's based on this sort of uh false or mistaken idea of of what the mind is and how the mind works i mean i i have a background in cognitive science and a lot of the latest uh, research in cognitive science um, talks a lot about this idea of the embodied mind, which mm. is that you can't actually um, have a mind in isolation. It's not like you can recreate it and put it into another uh, material, whether it's silicon or anything else. The mind co-evolves with right. the body and the environment. So it's sort of a, a fallacy to think that you could just uh, cut it out of the brain and like put it into something else because it's really sort of interconnected to the environment it's situated in. All right. We're coming now to the last of the seven. Is it egregore? Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. All right. So what is egregore? Because this is the one I, it's like, what is that? <laughs> what, what, what is, where does that word even come from? Yeah. So egregore, it comes from, um, it first showed up in English um, with a, an 18th century poet named Victor Hugo. And he was an epic poet sort of in the style of, of John Milton. He wanted to tell like a really big uh Yuval Noah Harari type tale about the history of of humans, and he was using this um, this term egregore to explain uh, what arises any time 
a uh, collective of humans get together on a common goal. It's sort of like a hive mind or a collective intelligence. And I think uh, a really good example of egregores in everyday life is a corporate bureaucracy or government bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. We say things like, um, you know, Uber decided to cut prices or the American government uh, did a trade deal. Of course, these uh, entities are made up of people, but it can be helpful and interesting to think of them as sort of like, decentralized intelligences that are distributed across a bunch of different minds and machines. And they often, um, they often outlast the people who created them. Mm. And you can't really locate them in physical space because they're more than just the office buildings that, um, that the people who work, uh, work for them occupy. And in fact, if you took the office building away, it would still exist. Right. So it's sort of, it's not to say that it's supernatural, but it's yeah. made up of, uh, of human minds. And it has a type of, uh, of agency, you might say. All right. So if this is this, this kind of, I guess, collective activity, collective will, does that mean that it's both, I guess, at war with, but also then powering the Uruk machine? You know, is that the force that's actually driving this thing that's trying to make everything regular and easy mm. to manage? Is it also... The thing that's sitting underneath Moloch, yeah. that's driving Moloch along and making people make these decisions to throw what they believe under the bus in order to be able to get an advantage. So how much of what we are now, how much of we, what we have always been as a species and as a successful species is because we have this capacity to work together and then say, not we did it, but organization did it. So in other words, take that we and turn right. it into an I. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the right question. I mean, um, oftentimes uh, in the past, egregores have developed a very uh, symbiotic relationship with what you might call the human hosts. A good a good example of this is like uh, in many different religious traditions, you find uh, something like the Sabbath or a day of rest, mm. and you could say that it's sort of like the egregores' way of keeping. Uh, demands of the human sort of within a productive zone and not triggering its own demise. And I think that, I think that unlike the, the other gods we talked about, Igor is more of like a, a general term that allows for sort of a plurality of different gods. There's basically as many Igorgors mm. as there are groups of people. So whether it's like a clique or a community or a religion, each kind of gives rise to or its a family. own. Or family, yeah. Each gives rise to its own sort of... Uh, collective mind (laughs) and of course it does absolutely we're social Mm -hmm. beings and so when we talk about that when we're talking about the social activity of a group what we're really doing is we're drawing a line around the egregore wow aaron this has been an amazing tour through a landscape that i think hopefully the listeners and i'm going to be able to go away with and i'm going to be able to look out there and say oh that's that well that's more like (laughs) that's egregore that's Idrisil, that's the stack. And hopefully when we have these new ways of looking, we will actually find that we can have a bit more agency. Right, and the the metaphors here is definitely not an exhaustive list. So I encourage you or anyone else to look out for the sort of hidden metaphors that are structuring the way that you see the world. It's a really fun way to, to think about what's going on out there. Thank you very much. 
Aaron name-checked quite a number of sources during our interview. We will do our best to collect them all and to put them all on our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the superpowers we already have but we can't see? And if so, we would like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you on a future episode. Now, in a fortnight, we're going to be back with another episode of Cryptonomics and then a great end-of-year episode for the next billion cars. And then finally, we have one more episode in Series 3 of the next billion seconds. We have great shows coming. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Aaron Z. Lewis for coming on to our show. The next billion seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.